Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Well, this is Tony LaGreca here, and this is Courage to Hope. Tonight, I have a very, very special guest. I have Dan Schneider, better known as The Pharmacist on Netflix. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you, Tony. Uh, it's a pleasure, uh, and your show, with its title, goes along with my theme, uh, that everybody, uh, we, we need hope, but many times to, to, for, for hope to come to action and to make a difference, you got to have courage. And uh, my story, but not just my story, there's a lot of people out there. And I'm just fortunate enough that my unsung to story got told in the Netflix docuseries. Well, the point part of that is you record so many different things. You're a big person about recording uh, shows. But let's give the audience a little history. Um, Dan's son, uh, regretfully, was killed, uh, was murdered down in the... Uh, is it the Ninth Ward? The Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Of Ninth Ward of New Orleans. And there seemed not to be um, anything being done about it. And Dan took it upon himself to do so much investigations on his own because he didn't feel that the police, the police just looked at it as just another drug deal going bad or something. That's and they right. paid very little attention to it. And I just admired Dan from afar because of his courage on several different fronts. But Dan, let's talk about your son, Danny, who was, looked like a lovely child and he seemed like a happy boy and everything. And tell me what, tell us what happened. Sure, sure. No, he was a, a joy uh, for, for basically all of his life, okay? I mean, no kid's perfect. You know, we, we had our little friction. He was a little mischievous sometime, okay? Uh, but the, the crazy thing is he, he, he gets murdered buying drugs. And, but we, we were unaware that he really had any kind of a serious addiction problem. He toyed around a little bit with marijuana. I had spoken to him about that and discouraged it and pretty much, I think, got him to stop and whatnot. But uh, some kind of way, and it, it would take a lot more uh, of the story, and I'm not going to take that much time, but some kind of way he got around a certain crowd. And uh, sometimes people say crack will can hook you the first time. I think that's an exaggeration, but it doesn't take much. Uh, we did find out, we didn't even know it. Most of the time he was a happy kid, but apparently, and he even told me some of this shortly before he died, uh, he was having some depression and, 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 and depression can lead to that. And then it's crazy, but it's a, it's a cycle where the depression can lead to drugs and then doing the drugs leads to depression. And, and so I think that cycle he got in, and I know a lot more about it now. It took a lot of learning after the fact, investigating after the fact, not just investigating his murder, but investigating how this happened to him and how did I didn't know. Okay. And we can go as much into that as we want, but I, I will give a little bit of an overview again, a little bit about our family. Uh, you know, we, I married my high, high school sweetheart. Okay. And we waited, uh, she helped support me while I was in pharmacy school. 
Uh, we waited five years after, after we got married to have our first son, which was Danny. Okay. A lot of people call him Danny Jr. And I kind of give that up. But we really didn't want him to be Danny Jr. So we named, we gave him a different middle name. Okay. And everybody spoke of him as not Danny Jr., but little Danny. Okay. Because he was, you know, even, even when he was 22, I was always a bigger guy than he was. Okay. So he was little Danny. And, but most people picked up on it as Danny Jr. And I'm fine with that. Okay. So in any event, uh, his official name was Daniel Jason Snyder. Okay, and I'm Daniel, believe it or not, Adolf Schneider. And I, <laughs> I've let the Adolf one go for various reasons. So, and, and I changed my name to Dan Schneider from Daniel or Danny simply to shorten it up since I got such a long uh, last name. Okay, but enough story about that. We had a good life. We wound up having a daughter. We had two kids. We had a nice house. I, I was working as a pharmacist, making pretty good money. We had nice cars. People looked at us and they called us, we looked like the Griswolds. And, and the reason why I say that, the Griswolds of the, the, the famous movies, vacation movies and Christmas vacation. And uh, if you watch that show, they had uh, a station wagon, a Taurus station wagon. And believe it or not, we had a Taurus station wagon that was a heck of a lot like this. And we took family trips in it, kind of like they did. We also had a big den in our house. We had a 17-foot Christmas tree. And we, we couldn't get it through the door, uh, uh, opened up. So we had to bring it in, tied up. And then we'd open it up when they got it inside and it would almost knock the walls of the hall. And that's what happened in that movie. But people looked at us as the Griswolds and we had a good life. Okay. And then all of a sudden, uh, April 14, 1999, he's 22 years old. My daughter's 18. Everything's going pretty good. Uh, and, and, and he comes to us and says he's going to go out and get some notes for a, a, a test that he had to study for. He was in community college. He also worked at Pizza. He also had a steady girlfriend that he was just about ready to be engaged to. Okay. And uh, he, he says he's going to get some notes for a test. Well, he leaves off maybe 1030 or so. And uh, shortly after he leaves, one of his friends called for him, okay, and we didn't know exactly why at the time, but we said, well, he, uh, he won't be back for a while, and da-da-da-da-da, so on and so forth. So in any event, uh, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, we're sound asleep, and there's a loud knock on the door, and uh, we said, what the hell's going on with this, you know, and uh, we think Danny's upstairs sleeping by now, and uh, so we open up the door and there's two policemen and they, they say, can we come in? And of course I said, sure. And, and I, I don't know exactly what they said, but what I heard was uh, your son has been shot. And I said, well, what hospital was he in? Okay. And he said, no, he, he, he was murdered. He's dead. And the, the shock was unbelievable. We just waking up. We had no knowledge of this. We blindsided. My wife screams, no, no, he can't be. He's in his room. His sister runs to his room, thinking she's going to find him in his bed and that this is some kind of a mistake. And then she shouts down from upstairs, no, mom, he's not in his room. And then we had to come to the realization that we had lost our boy. Okay. And, 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 uh, and then we, we had a double whammy because that was, that was grief and that was sorrow. Uh, but also then we had to, we had to realize that he also had a drug problem because he's murdered, attempting to buy drugs, which is another thing, just blew us away. And naturally, there's a certain amount of guilt there, okay? Certain amount of disappointment there. 
you know, he's a good kid all his life. And at that time I had a stigma about drug addicts. Okay. And, uh, I didn't think very highly of him. All of a sudden, my kid fits maybe in that category. And uh, so, in any event, uh, you know, we had to go to a funeral, and I'm not going to go through all the details there. But eventually, we, I come to the realization. I start learning about addiction and trying to figure out what's going on and talk to some of his friends. Come to find out one of those friends is a kid that called five minutes after he left the house. And later, he would tell me that Danny had told him he was having a problem. He was craving this drug, and he didn't want to do this. And that uh, they had made this deal where, like, well, call me up and we'll go out and drink a beer and uh, get your mind off of it. So Danny had attempted to reach him that very day, okay? And Ricky called him five minutes after they left. And we'll never know whether that would have made the difference in the long run, but we think it would have, okay? Well, it's another little sad chapter there. But in any event, I, I kind of quickly realized, no, wait a second, this wasn't a bad kid. Something had to get screwed up in his head. This drug must do things that I don't know it does. I must not understand. And I also realized he was a drug user, okay? Drug users are different than killers. But at this point in time, the police treated my son almost as badly or as, as a criminal as his killer. And to them, again, it was another drug deal going bad. I tried to work with them. Most of the time, they were lying to me. And that's where I started this kind of crazy habit that people wonder why. We kind of explain in this part of it. One question I always said, why did you do all this recording? Okay. I'd never been an investigator before. I didn't even start. I didn't really even start recording to investigate. What I did was the police, I would tell the police about something. Hey, y'all guys ought to look into this. This is what you ought to do. And, da, 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 da. and they would say, okay, well, we'll work on that. And then, you know, maybe a week would go by and I'd call them. i say, well, did anything work out on what I asked y'all to do? And they said, well, you didn't ask us to do that. And at the time, I was so grief-stricken, I started wondering, well, maybe maybe I didn't ask them. So I started recording just to really kind of have a, uh, uh, a, a, a way to look back to see what me and the police had discussed. So long story short, though, I, I, they, they really weren't working the case seriously. Uh, they did try a few things. They made some serious blunders. And then after they made the serious blunders, they not only didn't work the case, they didn't want me to solve the case. Because in solving the case and going to trial, all of their mistakes would have came out. Fortunately, we didn't actually officially go to trial. We did a plea bargain. And that's another little story. I don't know if we'll get into the details of that, okay? But, but it got to be a battle like the police didn't police got in my way they didn't they didn't just not work they did things to make it hard for me okay but you're right you know i, I guess i was kind of half crazy you could call it courage I, I you know i prayed to god we initially were mad at god but uh quickly i had to turn to god for help i was gonna have to go in dangerous areas when I found a witness, this witness life was going to be threatened. Well, Dan, so, I want to stop you there. What I, what I found unbelievable is that you were working nights, driving around these neighborhoods, trying to figure out who the killer was. And you were asking people questions that you didn't know. And you were by yourself 90% of the time, right? Absolutely. Uh, now, yeah, I, will, and it, I will clarify your position a little bit, okay? Yeah, yeah it was dangerous what I was doing, okay? But 
I rarely went up that night. I'm not going to say I never went at night, but I rarely went up there at night. There was a few times I would drive by at night and see different things, but I, I really, when I did go at night, it was very, very brief and, and usually wouldn't get out of my car, okay? Uh, but I, I would go during the day many times by myself and I would interview people. And look, people still wound up knowing up there who I was. And my life was threatened, okay? So anyway, I made a deal with God. I said, look, God, if you'll help me solve my son's murder and get the killer off the street, I will go on a mission for you. And my mission was going to be my advocacy and teaching parents about drugs and teaching kids about drugs and, and whatever I could do to reduce the drug problem, okay? And so when I managed to pull off solving the case by finding a witness, she was a hero. I mean, how do you find right, a story? Right yeah. But again, the way you found this witness, you started in the Ninth Parish phone book, call, <laughs> calling one person after the other, looking for an eyewitness. And you would, what was her, didn't, her last name begin with something that's low in the alphabet? Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't just that. I don't know why it's, it's ironic, because she was like, maybe the last call of that particular day. Okay. Of course, a lot of people didn't answer. I was going to call back. Some people told me to call back. Some people hung up, uh, but, but in any event, you're right. First, I had done a lot of investigating short of making the phone calls. Uh, the police had told me that making phone calls was a bad idea for a, a, a good while. I went along with that. And really it was almost an act of desperation at the end. Okay, I had almost ex ex exhausted many other options. So, in fact, what doesn't really necessarily come out in the show is naturally my wife's worried about me. She had lost her son and she was afraid she was going to lose me. And even one of my wife, there were a lot of friends and family around her that was always telling her, you got to get Danny to stop. He's going to get killed. That's not going to accomplish anything. Okay. Almost nobody thought I could really solve the murder or, or get any kind of measure of justice, okay? And by the way, I'm not putting white down because I understand how she felt. And usually I could talk her back into it and she definitely tolerated it and there were times she was supportive, okay? So I, I couldn't have made it without her, okay? But anyway, back to, back to the, 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 the situation. She finally came to me. I was, I was into this investigation, I think about nine months had exhausted a lot of things. And she came to me and said, you know, Danny, you know, you maybe really ought to give this thing up. And a lot of people have been telling me that. And I was pretty low. And I was, uh, uh, what I asked her for was, I said, look, give me 30 days. Give me 30 days. And this was in September of 1999, which was about six months, about six months after my son was killed. He was killed in April. So it was only about six months, I guess. And September is a, a special month for us, okay? One, my mother was born September 1st. I was born September 17th. And my son was born September 27th. So not only was it going to be my last month before I, um, I don't know for sure I would have given up, but I had agreed with my wife that give me 30 more days and if I can't make any progress, we'll give it up to the Lord. Okay? And so it's crazy, but... I had that idea about calling people and they had discarded me. So I went out, drew a circle around the area, a really basic thing, okay? And I, I, uh, I, wrote, I went to the telephone book, the big thick Haynes book back then. You didn't have computers and whatnot. 
and I wrote down all the listed phone numbers. Now, the, the situation there back then was only in that area, I would have to say it could have been as few as a half the people who even had phones. This was a low economic area, but maybe it was three-fourths of the people had phones. But you lost some people simply because they didn't have phones. And then some had unlisted phones. Okay. So really, you know, it was like a needle in a haystack. Okay. But so I started making calls and it, it wasn't in alphabetical order. It was by street. And I don't know why, but I didn't, I didn't start off. I should have. I didn't start off right in a little small circle where my son was killed. I started out on the outside. I went out about maybe a half a mile and I made the calls in the outer and I worked my way in. And believe it or not, I, another part of the story is on September 1st, I was going to start working this. Okay. I, I had problems. I only got 30 days. I got to start working on this. So I told my wife, I'm going to start making some of these calls. But before I did that, I went to the cemetery where my son is buried. And my, my son is buried with my mother. Okay. And I knelt at the ground in front of his grave and I prayed. And I beg God, and this is what I really beg God for. God, give me the courage to quit if I can't get a breakthrough. I hated the thought that I might give up on this. It, it, it was it, it was a killing, but but I begged, I begged God to give me the courage to quit. But I also put that little pit in there, like, but God, if you can help me get a breakthrough. Believe it or not. On September 1st, that very day is when I went home and started making the phone calls. And it wasn't until about four o'clock in the evening that I finally got to that little inner circle. Might have been the last call, but it was in the last three, four, five calls. And I had this little spiel. My son was killed on the corner of Dauphine and Forrestal. Okay. Some people think, they think that the murder's already been solved. It hasn't been. I'm his dad, and I'm out there trying to find some information about the case. Would you know anything about it? Would you know anybody that does? Well, I had said that to a bunch of, bunch of people. Now I said to this lady, she says, yeah, I saw it all. I know the killer. I know the killer's mother. I called Crime Stop. And it just blew me away. It blew me away. I didn't really totally believe her in a sense, okay? But we went through this whole big deal. She turned out being right. But then she wavered back and forth as to whether or not she was going to testify. Okay? So I didn't have to use the 30 days. I got it on day one. Think about that. God might be involved in that, okay? And of course, now it took it took again from that point in time, uh, uh, September, all the way to about May before we made the arrest. Okay, and that's another. There's a big story there, but we eventually convinced this witness to come forward, and she came forward. And uh, believe it or not, the night before, her tires were slashed, her windows were bashed in. They had a note on her car: "We're going to kill you if you testify." And then she was walking up the courthouse steps the morning that we went to, to possibly go to trial, arm in arm with one of the assistant DAs, and there were family members of his and maybe drug people uh, there that were threatening to kill her if she went through and testified. So remember now, she had also babysat the killer, and she was best friends with the killer's mother. The killer called her Titi which is their lingo for auntie, okay? She wasn't officially auntie, but he looked at her like an aunt. She looked at him like as if he was a nephew. How do you get something like this to happen, okay? Well, prayer, 
hard work, but there's God involved in this again, because when you think about it, one of the, for one thing, this girl was either in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the time. She only lived about a block from where he was killed. Okay. And so she could actually see the incident. She also knew the killer. So there was no doubt. Okay. Who killed him. Okay. But she was a decent person. If she would have been the type of person up there that wasn't a decent person, she'd have no credibility. Now, I'm not saying she was an angel, okay? Uh, I think she had smoked some pot in the past, and she admits in the series that, that she had a little drug issue. But she didn't have a big arrest warrant and, and nothing like that. So she was a pretty credible witness, okay? And then another reason why she came forward, now I did a lot of things. I pressured her, I begged her, I pleaded with her. My daughter worked on her. A lot of people worked on her to get her to come forward. But she had lost two brothers herself. And both of those cases wasn't solved because people wouldn't come forward. So she had this thing in her that this is not right. This is not fair. Somebody would help this man get justice. I wish somebody would help me get justice. So she is a hero more than anything else in this. Everybody looks at me as a hero in this story. Let me just tell you, if she wouldn't have did this, we'd have got no justice. I might have been a broken man. I don't know if I would have followed through on doing everything that I've done since. So anyway, that's kind of the story of the murder now. But I did learn how to be an investigator. And those taping and all that I did, although it didn't start off as an investigation tool, it became an investigation tool. Okay? And so, yeah. To give, to give the audience a little idea, you have boxes and boxes of tapes. Yes. I, from what I can see. By the way, one, one little piece, there, wasn't there a $10,000 reward? Yes, and yes. Didn't we, the guy who was who actually became who was who pleaded guilty came to the and said that he saw the whole thing happen and he tried to pin it on somebody else. Well, that's a and, that's a, that's a twist of the story that I wasn't going to give up, but I, I will give it out. I think they ought to watch it anyway. OK, believe it or not, prior to me knowing prior to me making that phone call to uh, and finding a witness. The police had worked, well, believe it or not, they worked her call. She called Crime Stoppers like within days of my son's murder. So they, they knew who the killer was from the get-go. I wouldn't find that out for months, okay? And what they did, they called the kid in. He's only 15 years old. He doesn't look like a killer. They call him in. He goes in with his grandmother, okay? And he quickly says, I didn't do this, but I saw it. So he lies, but they buy it. It makes it easy. They don't have to do a lot of work. He named somebody. Believe it or not, he was a suspect. So in any event, the police uh, call this young man in based upon a phone call from uh, the witness that I would follow later. I didn't know about her at that time. And she named this kid as the killer. Well, they called him and he's only 15 years of age and the police very quickly accept what he says. They, they turn him in. I would later find out, uh, again, the, the, the police take call his kid in. He says, I didn't do it. He named somebody. They run with that. That winds up going bad, okay? But in the meantime, I find out about the kid. I make contact with the kid. I become friends with the kid, who's the killer, and he is helping me find the killer. And, and, and later, not only did I find out he was the killer, and obviously I was distraught about he had killed my son, but crazy enough, I was even distraught that he had betrayed me. To some extent, made a fool out of me. So, you know, the, the great investigator here, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, okay? 
And so any of that, we eventually did get a trial and whatnot. And now what we're doing is all of a sudden against all odds, I lived through this. My witness lived through this. I get a measure of justice. We had to take a plea deal. We probably couldn't have wanted a trial. Okay. Uh, but we take a plea deal. And now I say to myself, okay, well, I made a deal with God. Now i got to do what I told God that I was going to do. You helped me get my son's kill off the street. Nobody gets hurt. I'm going to go on a mission for you. I started talking at schools. I tried to teach parents for signs, signs that I thought I might have missed. Teach kids about drugs, the seriousness of drugs. Okay. Then I'm a pharmacist, though. This is where the story really takes off, too, because I'm a pharmacist. And in my drugstore back in the year 99, 2000, 2001, that's when the opioid epidemic was developing. Now, back then, they didn't even realize it was developing. And you know what? I think if it wouldn't have been because of my son's murder and me studying addiction and me being aware, much more aware because I've been blindsided, I could basically see that this thing was going to get out of hand. And so I didn't really want to get back at investigating, okay? And so I, I tried to call the, the, the FBI and the DEA, and I, I, I really couldn't get, I really couldn't get them serious. They wouldn't take them serious. They don't, they don't work with people uh, the way they should work with people. Uh, I don't know. Some people might have thought I was half crazy, which you know, sometimes you got to be a little crazy to do certain things. Okay, I videotaped her office. I had. Uh, uh, I had moles of patient that would go in and tell me the, the, the layout of her office. I used all my technique to find this out. And really, I was giving it all to the FBI and the DA, which I did, okay? And, and, and they just wasn't moving fast enough, you know? At times, I even thought they were corrupt, okay? I, I don't know if that's really possible or not. This, some, sometimes I think it was, okay? But I think in general, it's just they moved way too slow. They wasn't seeing the kids dying. I was seeing kids coming to my store, my drugstore, with Oxycontin prescriptions, okay? And I was reading about their death notices in the paper. Some of these kids were children of my friends. So not only lost my, so I, I said, you know, somebody's got to do something about this. Okay. This is where courage comes in. I don't know. It was, I was at the right place, again, if you want to call it the right place at the right time, with the right motivations, and, and now investigation tools. And I think God put me in that place. And although I hadn't made a deal with God to, uh, to investigate doctors, that was not part of the deal. Supposedly God gave me a son and, and maybe we'll save that for another show, but there's a, he gave me a direct son uh, to actually do this because my wife again, didn't want us to get involved in investigating, but we started investigating more deeply. And just to kind of close that part of the story out is, it took about almost a year and a half, and I managed to get the doctor shut down, never to practice again. The DEA couldn't do it. The FBI couldn't do it. None of the police enforcement could you do kinda, it. Dan, I, you kind of, Dan, you kind of jumped. You jumped ahead a bit there, but what you saw in your drugstore was um, literally hundreds of prescriptions for oxycontin. Absolutely, and, 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 and you knew. And you knew that these things, you know, and then you went by and you investigated it. <clears throat> and this woman was kind of open from midnight until daybreak or something. And she, yeah, every right. night she'd have between 75 and 100 patients. You which... know, I have 
been sort of naive and I still want to think the best of everybody. And I really thought that some of these people that were telling me these stories about her office, I thought they were exaggerating. Okay. Now I knew she wasn't exactly the best doctor or that she wasn't messing around. Okay. But when they told me that she was only open at night and that she was open at three or four o'clock in the morning and there were hundreds of people there, I thought they were exaggerating until me and my wife one night and believe it or not, my wife who was against us there, after I got this sign from God and she saw this sign from God that I got, okay, she, she went with me to videotape this. And sure enough, we had two o'clock in the morning videotaping this, and this is in the show, okay? Yeah, there's hundreds of people coming and going. The, the, the New Orleans Police Department had people on her porch securing the place for her, okay? And so... All this infuriated me, and the fact that nothing was being done about it, you kind of got to say, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. Maybe I can save a few kids' lives. Maybe I can save what I went through. And unfortunately, we couldn't save more. I, I, I do feel like we saved some, okay? But it went on way too long. After that, I shut down a couple of doctors of lessons still, but I... I then went on to even do more because this problem is complex. You shut one doctor down, another one opens up, okay? So then I looked back at Purdue Pharma, and I already knew they were kind of dirty in this thing, but I investigated and found out they were very dirty. And again, I found out they were very dirty way back when. I made some attempts to get at them. Needless to say, almost nobody could get to them at that time. And I had very little progress, okay? But why it's a good part of the story is I have proof of the efforts I made to reach Purdue Pharma in some of the things I tried to do. The other thing I did in my state was I helped lead our state developing what we call a pharmacy monitoring program. This is where uh, uh, a pharmacist in a store will know if that person has already gotten a, a similar prescription at another drugstore. It used to be we didn't know that, okay? And so I started looking at ways that we could curtail this problem, ways we could control this problem. You know, I hate to say it, but my brain after my son's death just kind of enlarged. I started, I, I could foresee things. I, I, I could analyze things. I, 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 I never wanted to be behind the curve. I wanted to be in front of the curve. I was the behind the curve in my son's death, okay? Later, there were some signs that I missed. We had tried to do some things. We had some suspicions, but, and I, I was going to try never to let that happen again. And of course, I couldn't save my son, but I maybe could save somebody else's son. And so I did that. And over the years, I've done all kind of advocacy work, okay? And really was pretty much what some people would call an unsung hero. And there are many other unsung heroes out there. Anyway, just to move the story along, what happens is I finally get to be like 65 years of age. And that's like seven years ago, or six years ago. And I, one time I thought about writing a book. I got all these boxes of paperwork, audio tapes, videotapes. I got the story, thought I'd write a book, tried to do it a couple of times, really couldn't get to it. My wife is finally saying, look, why don't you just give this up? Okay. You're 65. Now we had our first grandchild, which you heard one of them screaming in the background. Okay. But we, so for one of the very first times I agreed with them. I basically had said, I think I've done enough. Problem is still big. I'm disappointed I didn't do more. But, you know, maybe somebody else has got to carry this talk. So I retired pretty much complete. I retired at the pharmacy, but I also retired from my advocacy work. 
okay? Which had really been, I've been doing that for years, 20 years, okay? Well, about two years after retirement, I get a phone call out of the blue, okay? And it's a health reporter at, a, at a, the local newspaper in our area, which has about a million circulations, the New Orleans area newspaper called the Times Picayune. And it's got a website called nola.com, N-O-L-A.com, okay? And this reporter wants to do a story. Uh, and, and he thinks that I should be a big part of the story. And he goes on to tell me that he moves down here and the, 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 they want him to do a story on the origins of the opioid epidemic. And he finds out that St. Bernard Parish, where I came from and where I did my work, was one of the origins of the opioid epidemic way back in the year 2001. So he's now asking me to come forward. Me and my wife look at each other and we almost don't do it. We almost turn him down. Because I know it's going to lead to me getting more involved. And, but, you know, we pray on it and we think about it. I said, you know, I don't know if I'll ever really write this book. Maybe a part of this story can get out. Okay. And maybe it'll do some good. Okay. So, so I went ahead and went along with this guy. And let me tell you, he did a lot of research. He worked on this story for over six months and researched. He checked out things I told him because he, did, he had to verify what I told him was true. Okay. He writes this big eight-page story. They take pictures of the, I got boxes in the attic, uh, you know, and it, it outlines the whole story of what I managed to pull off, okay? And it explodes in our local area, okay? I mean, it, it, I got people calling me heroes. They're writing articles locally about me and whatnot. I start getting calls from around the country that somebody wants to do more with this, maybe a documentary, maybe a movie, okay? So I finally settled on a little company called from New York, that their name is Cinemart. And th what they're gonna do is they're gonna invest and make a, a, a sizzle reel, like a little mini extended trailer on the story. And then they're gonna take this and they're gonna try to sell it to Hulu, Netflix, whoever they would buy the story. They thought it was a, a big enough story that somebody would want it, okay? And history shows Netflix bought it. There were a few always God things involved in this. When, when that newspaper article came out that exploded, something went on. There was a hurricane in the area, okay? We, we got a lot of hurricanes down here, okay? And I got wiped out Hurricane Katrina, too, which kind of dampened my advocacy for a while, okay? And God forbid I could have lost all my materials. But another blessing was I had it upstairs, and the water didn't get into my upstairs. Got in many other upstairs houses. It didn't get into mine. So I didn't lose my materials, okay? And so uh, where am I at now? So any of that, the, uh, we, we do, we, they do this story, and like I say, it, it, I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, uh, well, we have, you're now talking to Netflix or Cinemart. Yes. Cinemart Cinema is um, putting, I, it, putting the story together in the... Yeah, and, and, and now that story, I wanted to say what God might have came in in this thing. One thing is, before the NOLA.com story, which is titled Justice for Danny, was written, which ultimately led to the Netflix show, you know, indirectly, well, we had a hurricane in there. I don't, it wasn't a hurricane that had a direct hit, but it scared a lot of people. And the story broke that weekend. Now, I wasn't told it was going to break then. And when they told me they were going to release it that weekend, I said, oh, crap, this is the wrong time. People are going to be focused on the storm, okay? They're not going to pay any attention to it, okay? Just the opposite happened. A lot of people had nothing else to do. 
Yeah, they watched as much as they could do about the storm, but they read the newspaper. I think, I mean, it was a big story. It would have did well, but it did even better well for when they broke it. Okay. Now, the same thing with Netflix. Netflix breaks the story, and then within two weeks of the story breaking, what happens? COVID. And again, I said, oh, my God, this is going to mess this thing up, man. Everybody's focused on COVID. Well, guess what? They didn't have anything else to do. They watched TV. They looked around for shows. Now, I think my show would have been a success because okay, it's a big story. But a lot of people watched it because they didn't have anything else to watch. But they fell in love with it. They fell in love with it. And, 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 and it sent this message of courage and hope and that one person can make a difference. And, 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 and it also gave me a platform now. And I'm using that platform now to see if I can't do something else to reduce the drug problem. And that's what I'm working on now. Okay. And so it, it's been viewed over a hundred million times. Okay. In 60 different countries. And I can walk into a store. If I got my pharmacist out on sometime, even with nothing on. Okay. And they go, are you the pharmacist? Okay. And they know me. Some of them know my voice. Well, it's, it's hard to miss that accent. Thank you. Thank you. For what, takes one to know one. That's right. I, I do want to I do want to go back just for two minutes before we do that. The the boy who was the killer that you made, you know, that they uh, made an agreement with. He's now out of prison. And you interviewed him after he came out of prison, because I know in the interview he wasn't 15. He was. Older. Did you interview him or did the people from the Cinemark place there, did they interview him? In the docuseries, they interviewed him. No, I had no connection with him on that, in, in, in that particular interview. Now, I will tell you this. Obviously, I knew the kid when he was, uh, when I was working the case and I found out he was a killer and we went to a trial together. Okay. Me and my wife also went to uh, uh, prison and visited him after he'd been put away for 10 years. And we made an agreement. He supposedly had come to God and kind of wanted to apologize, okay, and, uh, and, 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 and admit and tell us as much of the story as, as, he, as he could. And uh, so we visited him in jail. And let me tell you, that's a, you bring this up, you led it to another big twist in his story or a big thing in his story. Okay? When we sat down in that prison 10 years after, that he'd been in prison for 10 years. The first thing he did was he called me Mr. Danny because he'd always called Mr. Danny because he knew me when he was 15 and I was 50 years old. He said, Mr. Danny, I, I want to thank you. And I said, what's that, Jeffrey? And he said, I want to thank you for saving my life. What he meant was, and I knew this, see, I knew all the drug dealers in the area. I knew all Jeffrey's friends. Most of his friends would later die in the street in that kind of neighborhood. They would die in the street. And Jeffrey realized by going to jail, which I'm sure he didn't want to go in jail, and he sure was not a cakewalk, okay? But he realized he was alive because he was in jail. What he didn't know, and I told him right then and there, I said, Jeffrey, you really don't know the whole story. I know what you mean. Put you in jail, okay? The real story is, I thought about killing you. What happened somewhere along the line, when the witness told me, that you were the killer, okay? I couldn't really believe it. And I had it narrowed down to the guy you named and you. 
And after investigating, one of my friends was worried about me. And he said, look, I used to know, he said, years, years ago, I was a drug addict. I know that area. I know a man up there that might be able to give you some information and help you determine who was the killer. Okay. So I go and I call him a retired drug dealer. That's what he called him, an older man. And I sat down with this older man and I gave him Jeffrey's name and I gave him the other guy's name. And I said, I, I, I want to know if, they, if these are the killers and which one killed him. Okay. And he said, okay, Mr. Mr. Snyder, I can do that for you. I think I can do that for you. Do you want me to have him killed? For $500, I can have him killed. You know, I had a wrestle with that. Let me show you something. I'm going to read something very briefly. This is another very unusual part of the story. My boy, we talk about being a good boy, but my son had come to me about five years before his murder. And he, he said, Dad, what do you feel about the death penalty? And I said, uh, well, I'm for the death penalty. He says, well, Dad, I'm not. Uh, and uh, we had a discussion, almost an argument, but a friendly argument, okay? And uh, he, was, he had done this because he was writing uh, some poetry to, to put in his uh, local high school uh, booklet. Kids would do, and he had studied uh, the death penalty, and he was against the death penalty. And so uh, without going into a lot of details, uh, you know, I told him I was for it, but I did tell him, I said, you know, the way they do it, they are doing it the wrong way. You might have a point. I said, you know, if they could kill these people quick, it might have an impact of a deterrence. But the way it goes now, they put them away for 10, 20 years. Everybody forgot that they killed somebody. A lot of the people that are dead. It really doesn't deter crime. And the, the, the purpose of actually killing somebody is because you want to make people say, well, I'm not going to go kill somebody because I'll get killed. It does none of that. Now, I'm not sitting here trying to advocate against the death penalty. My son won the argument with me, okay? I am against the death penalty, but I understand both sides, okay? But let me tell you, you know what saved that kid's life? My son, five years after he had that discussion with me, five years before his death, he wrote this poem. I'm going to read it. It's titled 12.01 AM. Wrong turn. It's like a mystery story. Life burns. As Stephen King writes down his words of glory, critics rave. The body of a killer will be placed in his long-awaited grave. The parents of his victims are charged a high price of admission to watch his pain. But their satisfaction is guaranteed, so everyone claims. A flip of the switch in the dark of the night. A cry in the distance. A life taken for spite. The day turns black. The light is gone. New killers are born. A director now awaits approval to promote a blockbuster hit. But in life, this story just doesn't fit, or does it? This poem is his story. It was almost like a premonition. In fact, he was pronounced dead at 12.08 a.m. And the coroner told me he died before that. He may have died at 12.01. My son definitely made a wrong turn that night, even... Physically, he did is one reason why he got shot. He did turn on the wrong corner. Okay. But the real message, too, is Jeffrey was the killer. He made the wrong turn. But when Jeffrey asked me and said, Mr. Danny, thank you for saving my life. And I told him this. I said, you know, Jeffrey wasn't me that saved your life. 
It was Danny's. It was Lodana that saved your life. But think about that. He saved his own killer's life. I'm kind of proud of that now. It's a, it's a real professional type poem. He presents a pretty good argument, uh, whether you agree with it or not. And uh, believe it or not, he would have wanted this kid to have a second chance. And he does have a second chance. So uh, uh, that, that's just another, an, an, another part of this story. Now, now on to all of this has helped motivate me. There must be something going on here. There must be some purpose in this, some sense of my son's death. All these things that fell in place to make me solve these things, maybe, maybe there's more than I can do. Okay, so after the docuseries breaks and I get a platform now, I've been working for a couple of years. I, 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 sad to say, I'm disappointed that for the past couple of years, it's only gotten worse. And that new drug, fentanyl, which is extremely poisonous drug and potent, is increasing death, no, deaths. And it's, it's been frustrating, to say the least. It, it sometimes makes you wonder, you know, did I have any impact? And I know I did because there's a lot of people that write me now. Now I'm fortunate. There are a lot of unsung heroes, but now I'm a sung hero to them. So I had to talk about yourself as a hero, but people see me as that. And if it gives them some courage and motivation, very good. But the bottom line, I haven't moved the needle is what I say. Okay. So recently, I made some adjustments in my thinking and really started studying potential solutions. And there's something out there called medically assisted treatment. The short name for it is MAT, M-A-T. Okay. And it's, 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 a, it's an, a partial opioid drug, okay, that a person can take, okay. And it doesn't really give you a high. Okay, uh, but it stops withdrawal symptoms and cravings. Now, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but it works for a lot of people. And they have found that people put on this, many of them, of course, now they got to kind of want to, they kind of want to get off drugs, okay? but they in this cycle that they can't get off of them. Okay. And if you get them on this drug called Suboxone with Matt, okay, a lot of them make it out of this thing. They start being productive citizens. Their head cleans up a little bit. They, they, they think more clearly. They don't have to go out raw, okay? And so I don't know why. I didn't know why it hadn't been used more. And I got to admit over the years, I had known about it, and I was not a big advocate of it. Some people say it's not the best form of treatment, that the ultimate goal should always be abstinence. And even with this drug, you can get to nothing. You can eventually wean yourself off, but it's not easy. But we are finding some people... They have to stay on it long term. But if they do stay on it long term and they don't want to do drugs, it helps them not do drugs and it helps them function. I started studying that and I did some research recently on this. And I got, there's a book called The Preventable Epidemic by a guy named Dr. Aaron Gupta. And he talks about how it is that, and I didn't even realize this, even though I was involved in all that stuff, it today is easier to get an Oxycontin prescription, okay? than it is to get Suboxone. Now, Oxycontin is the drug that led to all this crap. Oxycontin by itself can kill you. Suboxone doesn't kill anybody, okay? So why do we have so much restrictions on this drug? Well, it's stigma, it's, it's, it's fairly expensive, 
although it's not as expensive as long-term therapy, it's not as expensive as somebody buying drugs on the street on a regular basis. But in general, it, it, there's a price to it. So anyway, we, I now have uh, something that I, I have named the EMM-C or MC. And everybody knows MC is like, you know, the master ceremonies and uh, the, the guy that controls the show and whatnot, okay? Now, this MC stands for enhanced. The extra word that I've added in is enhanced medical assisted treatment, okay? And the C stands for coalition. I formed a coalition of people to try to see if we can't get medically assisted treatment mainstream. Can we motivate these doctors to do it? They're not doing it because they're not being adequately paid. They're not doing it because they don't want to be involved with drug addicts, okay? And, and, and they, they, we've got to turn that around, okay? So I'm, I was initially trying to get the federal government to give us a program like they did with COVID to invest in this mat and put avatars and stuff like they did for vaccines and, 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 and try to motivate these doctors to, 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 to offer these services. They, they gave everybody free doctors and free vaccines and all this for COVID, well, believe it or not, in the age bracket from 15 to 54, more people have died from opiate overdoses than COVID. 150% more. So, Dan, isn't the issue, the big issue that most doctors are not, there's only like 2 or 3% of the doctors who are allowed to give prescriptions for, for well, Suboxone? We're not allowed, and the word wouldn't be allowed, but only two or three percent have been motivated enough to do it. Okay. And there were restrictions too that doctors have to get a certain amount of training. They've got to report to the DEA every month. There's a whole bunch of things that makes it difficult, and they just decide not to fool with it. Okay. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to remove some of those restrictions, not all of them, but some of them, and we're trying to motivate these doctors to do it. Now, Right now, there's a bill in Congress, and it's called MAT, Medically Assisted Treatment Act. And they are going, they're trying to reduce a lot of the restrictions and make it easier and to hopefully get some doctors to do this, because they also are starting to think that this is a way to try to reduce this epidemic, to turn the curve, to move the needle. Instead of going always up, maybe start going down, okay? And believe it or not, it has bipartisan support from Republicans and Democrats because both of them are losing kids and no families in their constituents that have lost kids. And it hasn't passed yet, but it's pretty close. So if anybody's out there, look up the MAT Act, the Medically Assisted Treatment Act, and call your congressman, call your senator, okay, and try to encourage them to, to support this. Now, with me and a lot of other advocates, have done, not a lot, of, a few other advocates, who are like-minded along with me, we realize now, even if this passes, there's no funding for this. Not like COVID, where they paid for vaccines, they paid doctors, they paid hospital bills. There's no funding for this. All they're going to do is reduce some of the restrictions. And that's a big first step. We need that to happen. But I'm coming in with what they call an enhanced version. And we're going to figure out a way to pay for this. Now, the goal is to eventually prove to the government that if you do this, if you implement this and you pay for it, we're going to see a reduction in overdose deaths. We're going to see a reduction in crime. Okay. We're going to see something that ain't happened for many, many years that it's going to start going down. Okay. And if we can prove this, then we're going to go back to the federal government and say, look, 
y'all had this great idea. We're doing this out here, but we can't keep doing this. We need your federal people to do this nationwide. So I'm going to try to create five pilots around the country. Okay. My hometown, I was in a meeting this morning before I came here with my leaders of the little parish that I came from where the story started. Okay. And we're putting together uh, uh, one of the pilots in my hometown. And we're going to find ways to, to motivate these doctors, put up billboards. We're going to find ways to pay this. And what we're going to do now, I've already tried to think in advance of what the, what's the I got you. I'm sure I haven't thought about all of them. But one, we don't want to turn this into welfare. Since we're going to be giving this drug out for free and paying the doctors, the patient has to pay nothing. Okay. So you know when you really give something away, okay, uh, some people abuse it. Okay. And, 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 and we don't like that, but we may have to tolerate it. But what we're going to do is we're going to offer this to patients for one year. Okay. We're going to pay for this for one year. Now, if they stay in the program and they do what they're supposed to do, okay, at the end of one year, okay, they should be able to get off. Okay. And, and, and why not? They're probably productive citizens. They're probably working. This only costs them about 300 a month. Okay. And so, so we might have been covering the cost for a year. That's $3,600 per patient, okay? But these people, if they don't do this, they're going to buy street drugs. And they're going to spend more than $300 a month, okay? And guess what? They're probably going to die. And those drugs on the street are more addictive than this. So that, their situation is only going to get worse. With this drug, it isn't going to kill them. Now, there are catches. They can fake it and not take this drug. It doesn't give as good a high, so to speak, as the other ones, but it does take away the cravings. It does take away the withdrawals. So for those who want to have a chance, we got to get that out in mass. Now, there's a little bit of a theory in this thing, okay? We really don't know how well it'll work until we actually do it, okay? And that's why we're going to have these pilot programs, okay? And we're going to find out what the difficulties are. And then hopefully we can go to the federal government, show them what we've done, and we can make this a program. We can start turning this thing around and cutting down these overdose deaths and getting control of this situation. So that's what I'm doing now. And anybody that wants to help, okay, I got an email address. People can uh, email me, dschneider at tofhope.com. They can email me. I'll send them more information. I'll let them know what we're doing. Some of them might be able to get involved some kind of way. They might be able to write congressmen or senators, okay? And, uh, and I'm, uh, right now, I've got two locations, okay, my hometown and one other location. And I've got, I'm, I'm looking for three other locations around the country. And I, I'm sure we can find them. I just haven't gotten that far just yet. But I am going to tell you this now. If that Medically Assisted Treatment Act doesn't pass, it's going to be difficult. I, I don't know if we can do this totally on our own. But if that passes, we can enhance that act. And that is the goal of what I'm doing. And I'm, let me tell you, I go high and I go low. And I hate to say it, I was getting exhausted again. I was getting almost burnt out again, okay? Everything I was doing just didn't seem to be working, okay? And, you know, I got this thing about me. My son's murder case wasn't working either. Then I got a breakthrough, okay? And I changed the gears. I made a decision to make these phone calls that they told me not to make. And then I'd almost given up with that doctor. Okay. And then we got sort of a breakthrough. Okay. And that's what I'm hoping is happening here now. 
I'm hoping we get in a breakthrough right now and we can we can be a part of turning this around. So uh, everybody on the audience, we need your help. We need your support. I also have a website. It's called tunnelofhope.org. T-U-N-E-L-O, whatever, how you spell tunnelofhope.org. And if you've watched the show, one of the chapters in that show is called Tunnel of Hope. And, and where this came from is when I was trying to solve my son's murder and I was trying to put this dog out of business, I would drive to work. And I, there was a group of trees on this little two-lane highway down in St. Bernard Paris that, that, and these trees formed like a tunnel as you rode through it. And somewhere along the line, I would pray through that tunnel. Oh, please, God, let me help me find my son's killer. Don't let anybody anybody get hurt in this thing, okay? And I and and please, God, let me shut this stock down. Let let me let the police finally shut her down, okay? All right. And it's this theme. Well, there's always light at the end of the tunnel, and and that light is hope. Okay, and so I tell people that want to get on board with what I'm doing with Matt now and, and all of my efforts is be a part of the light at the end of the tunnel. Go to my website, tunnelofhope.org. Okay, we're going to be making some modifications on it now because it doesn't say a lot about uh, uh, EMM-C, which is my Matt concept. And that's all because I really put this Matt concept together over the last maybe four to six months. And it really hasn't materialized or very getting close to materialized until really like the last 30 days. So we're going to be making some modifications on that website, but anybody can sign in there. And they can also, if they just want more information, they can email me. Okay. If they email me, they'll get my phone number. And, and hold yeah. um, Dan, Dan, if you send, if you send everything to, to up to Ben to us, yes. um, we'll put it on the WMEX website. Oh, great. So, so they'll be able to look up your, your website. We'll link it in. And um, I will send you a bunch. In fact, I did send you today. Remember I told you I was going to send you something? I sent you yeah. like an outline of it, okay, an abbreviated outline. Now, I'm going to send you a couple emails that are probably too long. You'll have to weed through it and see what you can use. But that one I sent you today is an excellent one to post. The only thing it doesn't do is if it's a summary, so – it works a lot better if I can kind of explain the system and then they read that and it makes sense. Okay. So if it didn't make total sense to you when you looked at it and I might have to get better at that. Okay. But, uh, uh, anyway, I'll send you a bunch of stuff and anything that you propose, anything you can do, I'd appreciate it. Okay. I want to, I do want to tell the, the, um, listeners that Dan Snyder is the, is the man behind The Pharmacist, which is the series on Netflix. There are five episodes or six? It's four. Four, four. episodes. There are four episodes. They're about 45 minutes each long. Correct. And and it's very compelling. If you start to watch it, you will you will actually binge all four. There's, there's, there's no way you can leave it. And as Dan said, there's 100 million people have already watched this. And I think it's very valuable for everybody to watch it, to understand. Um, is with one thing about how your son was murdered and how you followed up with so much courage and so much tenacity to stick to it for a year and a half. That was, that was courageous. But the second thing is how you took the advantage of being a pharmacist to be able to monitor the doctor who was the dirty doctor who was running the pill mill 
And uh, I mean, this pill mill, she was charging $350 per prescription. And uh, there was one place where we saw the, that she had over $1.9 million in her bank account. <laughs> so getting and, and everything was strictly cash, no checks, no credit cards, no insurance. Absolutely. And, she, and when you do 75 to 100 people a day at $350, that's $35,000 a day. So it, it doesn't take long to build up to 1.9 million. You're but right. You, you, You're right. And let me add, let me add in. I believe based upon I have video evidence. If you took one of my hours of video, okay, and interpolated that and say, well, she was open for six hours. Now maybe she didn't have as many in the beginning or as many at the end. Okay. I think it was way more than 75 patients. It could have been 150 patients. Some of them she spent no time with. Me and my wife actually would see a cab pull up and somebody get out of the cab and go into her office and within three minutes, get back in a cab and take off. Yeah, that's, that says a lot. And the other thing is, is when you see people now um, where, where this was, is in East New Orleans, right? Yes. Yeah. But then you see people with Mississippi license plates and Arkansas license plates and Texas license plates. Florida. You have to, you have, you have a local police, but then turns out the local police, they, she actually hired police officers. I don't know if they were on duty or off duty to protect her, yes. which is more unbelievable. I mean, basically she was like the, and for your, but for your being able to follow it up and, and I won't give it all away, but for you to go to the, to the, give up on the DEA, give up on the FBI and go to the right, the right source to get it something done. And you, and you did that. You didn't give up on trying all different angles to get to what it would take to get her license revoked and get her shut down. And uh, that's, we call our show courage to hope. And boy, you had a lot of courage and you had a lot of hope because I didn't see any possibility that these things were ever going to happen. And you just never, never, never gave up. You're kind of the, the Winston Churchill of the advocacies of, for going after drug dealers, you know. Thank, thank, thank you. Yeah, you know. And, you know, I know the guy said, yes, because they're in a lab coat. They didn't want to prosecute doctors, you know. But that's the, the, the secret is, I mean, my son, you know, his drug dealer wore, wore a lab coat. And that's the way I feel about it, you know. So um, we both come from that same thing. There's a book. I don't. I got the book, but I can't remember the author right now. But a lady wrote a book, and she, she titled it. The uh, drug dealers in lab coats, and it was all about the pill mill era. Sure was. Yeah, I can see that. So again, um, we're just about out of time, and I want to thank Dan for all his hard work and everything he's done, and for giving us an hour today because I know he is a very busy guy. It took me a while to track him down and get him to answer his phone, and you know. <laughs> so, um, but got to go on Netflix. Netflix and it's just called The Pharmacist because it's one of the most popular shows on Netflix. It'll come right up. Tony, let me give you things. And your other Bostonian over there, Jim Wahlberg, uh, for all the efforts, and I think you sometimes do things together with him from what I understand. We do, yes. Uh, I want to thank you and him and everybody that puts their heart and effort into this. It's going to take, I hate to use Hillary Clinton's words, okay? I wasn't necessarily a big fan of hers, okay? But it takes a village. 
and it's going to take a village to turn this thing around. And so, uh, God, God, Absolutely. God bless us all. And God bless our cause. And God bless our efforts. Tell your friends that this guy is really worth listening to. And again, this is Tony LaGreca, and it's the courage to hope. And thank you all for listening today.